All right. Well, thank you. And it is good to be back with you uh, this weekend. And I have been out of the pulpit for, I think, five weekends. I had somebody right before the service say, what's it like to have a month off? And I'm like, it wasn't a month off. I was busy doing many things. I just wasn't preaching. Um, amongst those things I was doing, I spent a week preaching at a camp in Georgia. And I did some work here at the church. I read some books. I also had knee surgery in the midst of that. 12 days ago, I had knee surgery. And I'm happy to tell you I'm doing well and everything is the way it's supposed to be. Um, I I will say this, you know, I've been here for 13 years and I can't tell you how many times I've gone to St. Anthony's Hospital to go and to pray with somebody and to, you know, be with them before their surgery or after their surgery, whatever. Boy, does it feel different walking through those doors when you're the one having the surgery. Let me tell you, it was like an epiphany as I walk. I'm like, I I know these doors well. It feels so different right now. I'm going under the knife. So uh, thank you so much for uh, so many prayers. I've gotten so many cards and notes and Facebook posts and all these different things. So thank you for all of that. Uh, Especially thank you. Many people have brought meals by for me. And if I look a little plumper up here, there is a reason for that. I've been eating like a king and not exercising at all. So it makes me think that I should have surgery more often. Uh, it's been wonderful. Um, so I'm, I'm mostly pain-free. I will tell you, I went home last night after the services a bit on the sore side. And so I'm going to take it easy. They gave me a stool here in case I need it. So... I hope not to have to go to that, but uh, we'll do the best we can. I'm just trying to, you know, get a little more sympathy out of this. Uh, I do also want to thank those who uh, were teaching here for the last five weeks, and I want to make something clear. It really doesn't matter who is here. It's not about the person who is proclaiming the truth. It is about the truth. It is about the word. It is about Jesus Christ, and... So thankful that uh, we've had really some wonderful messages. I've heard so many good things. And I just want to publicly thank Tom, Jim, Chris, Jim, Travis, and Brad for, in a sense, bringing by meals to the church and giving spiritual food to the congregation. So thank you to those men for what they did. Today we are launching a new series in a sense. It's kind of a mini-series in the midst of our larger series from 1 Corinthians. And today's message is entirely an introduction to the subject of love. I intended to uh, begin getting into the text of 1 Corinthians 13, but the more that I wrote the introduction, the more the introduction became the message. And so we're really not going to get into 1 Corinthians 13 per se today, as much as lay a foundation for the subject of love that we can then build on beginning next week as we get into the text. We're talking about love because the Apostle Paul talked about love. One of the things about expository preaching when you're working your way through a book of the Bible is that you take the next thing that comes up. Uh, and and the, the reason for that is that it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so we're allowing, in a sense, the Spirit of God to determine the subject of what we're studying as a congregation. And that's part of the beauty of it. Quick reminder on this church and the setting, and we've been studying this for almost two years, but just in case we've forgotten, and I know that we have some new folks here today, 
We've been uh, learning about this church in Corinth, this church that the Apostle Paul started and served at for 18 months. He then left to go on to do other ministry callings, and after he left, this church really spiritually collapsed. Now, the irony of that is that they still had church going on. They still had the structures of church. They still were a church. But in terms of the heart of the church and the things that matter for a church to really be vibrant, things quickly turn to chaos. And we have seen, as we've been studying this, some of the things that happened were the people became very divided. There was schism in the congregation. Some of the people, for example, saying, I follow this particular person uh, who was a leader in the church. And other people in the church saying, no, 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 I'm of this person, another leader in the church. And they took pride in who they were following and sort of giving to that person allegiance that only Christ deserves. We've seen that uh, they had bad attitudes towards one another. They, they would sue one another. Rather than resolving things amongst themselves, they were going into the courts and they were suing one another. They were sexually promiscuous, even going so far as going to the temple of Aphrodite and joining themselves with the prostitutes there. They were confused about marriage, confused about singleness. Uh, they got haughty about issues of Christian liberty, things that Christians, good people can disagree on. They were taking hard stances on those things and viewing themselves as being more spiritual and godly than the others who took a different position. They even perverted the Lord's Supper and turned it into essentially a drinking party. Now, in, the, in spite of all of this chaos... When they looked in the mirror, they saw themselves as being really wonderful Christians. And they viewed their church as being a really wonderful church. In fact, they thought they were a little bit better than everybody else. So on the outside and in their own estimation, wonderfully godly. But in terms of the things that God cares about in a church, we've seen that they were incredibly superficial What we most recently have studied, beginning in chapter 12, and this is going to carry us through chapter 14, is that they even took the matter of spiritual gifts and found a way to make it all about them. They were enamored with these gifts, especially the ones that were public and particularly the ones that were spectacular. They thought that since they had those gifts that they were really in with God, and they missed the fact that spiritual gifts are not an indication of spiritual maturity. And so there was all kinds of problems that came from that, more that we're going to see in the days ahead. But here was the basic problem. And this, I think, is why Paul transitions, as he does in chapter 13. The Corinthians were really about themselves. There was a basic self-orientation. And they viewed their Christianity and the church and all the rest as one more extension of their own ego. And they tried to make all of this really all about them. And what we have learned is that when we make things all about us or when we make ourselves the center of our own universe, that chaos ensues. And this is what's going on in the church, happens in our own lives. The last thing that we saw in chapter 12 was that Paul basically says this, you all think you're godly, you all think you're mature, you're all enamored with spiritual gifts, I am now going to show you a much better way, a more excellent way. And then he transitions into this wonderful chapter 
one of the most famous chapters in the whole Bible, one of, and, and rightly so. I mean, it's, it's not like it, well, we don't think it should be that important. It is a wonderful chapter. It's, it's fantastic. One, uh, one commentator, you know, you read the commentators and all, they all come to this chapter and they're all like, oh man, is this great. They're almost like breathless when they come to chapter 13. Here's what one says. This is the greatest, strongest, deepest thing Paul ever wrote. Another commentator says, studying this chapter is somewhat like taking apart a flower. It is a beautiful piece of literature. It is beautiful in its description. And that's why if you go to weddings, Christian weddings, probably other than maybe Ephesians 5, the one thing that the bride and the, and we, we had a, a soon to be bride and groom standing up here. Uh, are, are you reading chapter 13 in your, in your ceremony? You are. No. Okay. Working out those details. Work it out because I'm doing the ceremony and we need to get that figured out. Uh, but you hear it all the time. Rightly so. Special occasions, people want to read 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And I think that this is really inherently one of the struggles that we're going to have in studying this is that it is so beautiful, it is so wonderful that our inclination is going to be to want to sort of sentimentalize it and to think, oh, what is your church studying now? We're studying love. Oh, it's so wonderful. And to have kind of this sort of ooey, gooey, hallmark momenty kind of feeling about this subject. And I want to tell you that I am going to fight against that. And I'm going to try to get us not to buy into, because in the world, I'm, I'm betraying future points, but in the world's understanding of what love is, it, it's, it is the hallmarky thing. It is the ooey gooey thing. And what this chapter is about is not that. And if we somehow come out of it thinking love, we have so missed the point. And here is my strategy for keeping us from doing it. And I'm telling you right now, we are going to go back to this over and over and over again. Rather than ooey gooey and rather than the hallmark moment, we are going to go back to the ultimate expression of the love that 1 Corinthians 13 is describing, namely the cross of Jesus Christ. We go back. What is love? It is a savior, a bloody savior writhing on an executioner's cross. Now, how often are you going to see that on the Hallmark Channel? It doesn't fit, does it? That's not the world's vision of what love is, but that is love. And it is to that that we are going to be exploring and I hope being transformed by it. You know, love is a most wonderful and misunderstood reality. We use the word for just about anything. We can say things like this. I love my new jeans. Love them. I love my dog. I love my school. I love ice cream. I love to water ski. I love to sleep in. And we use that word to and apply it to all kinds of things. And that's part of the problem. It's so elastic. It's so stretchy and used in so many superficial ways. I remember when I was in college, my college roommate we in, in the dorm, I'd be laying in bed at night trying to go to sleep and he'd be talking to various girls on campus on the phone. And I, you know, I'd be laying there and I'd hear him one night going, baby, I love you. I love you. And like a couple days later with a different girl, he'd be going, baby, I love you. I love you. I'm thinking to myself, I'm laying there going, what? 
What are you talking about? Is this what love is when we offer it in such a casual way? In the culture of the world, yes. And in the use of the word, yes. If I can use the the same word to describe my relationship with my goldfish as I do my relationship with my spouse, my child, or my mom, we clearly have a problem. And this is the problem in the church at Corinth. Uh, Their problem is the same as ours. There was a basic self-orientation about everything. And even the subject of love became more about the, the, uh, the lover and, and the, no, I didn't say that right. It became more about the experience of love and maybe the feeling of love and the fruit of love rather than the essence of love. And this is the world that we live in today. I mean, think in, 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 in the movies and in the books you read, in the magazines and on Oprah and all the rest, what is love? It is not a writhing, bloody savior on a cross giving himself for the world. But that is love, ultimate love, real love, divine love. And this is the love that we are called to express in our relationships, in our Christian relationships, and really... To the world, love your enemies, we're told, for example. So today we're going to try to unpackage that a little bit and talk about what is love, what is real love. And we begin now with the question, where does real love come from? Where does real love come from? A secular evolutionist would say that there is no reality to love, that love is not real. He would suggest, or she would suggest, that uh, it is a social construct. It is something that that we need to survive. It's an instinct. It's not. It's not real. So that um, a, a man needs a wife to reproduce and to continue the species, and so there is a sense of love in that relationship. Or uh, uh, the, the children need to have care by parents. And so there's a sense of love there within the family. Or uh, the village needs to look out for one another. And so there is an affection and a sense of love in the village for protection. But it's, it, it, it seems to us to be something, but it really isn't anything at all. Now, I, I like to think about that guy's wife. Uh, who hears him now believing this and, and then saying uh, at night, baby, I love you. But after all, love really isn't anything at all. I think there's a lot of single evolutionists in the world. When love is nothing, it's hard to get that excited about it. So let's lay a foundation stone right now about love. Where does love come from? Love comes from God. Now in saying that, I am not saying that he is merely the provider of it. And I don't mean that, uh, that, that, that he is simply the creator of it or that he is capable of it. What I mean by that is what it says in 1 John 4, 8. God is love. Think of that a moment. God is love. Let's go back in the story. And when I mean the story, I mean the big story, the story of, of everything. 
And in that story, we're going back before creation, so before the world existed, before the universe existed, before the angels existed, before heaven existed, before there was anything but God. In eternity past, there was God. And God dwells in relationship. There are three in one in the Godhead. There is God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. How did they relate to one another? Way back in the story. What were they, what were they, what were they doing in eternity past? Is being God boring? I mean, if all there is is just God, how great could that be? Well, here's the description of the Bible. That God is relational. That God is personal. And that within the Trinity, God related to one another in dramatic fashion. In fact, we have one example from uh, John 17, where Jesus says this, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you, what's the next word? Oh, we don't have it up yet. Because you loved me. Because you loved me before the foundation of the world. What was it like to be God in the Trinity? There was love. Before the heaven, before angels, before the universe, there was love. What kind of love? This kind of love. They delighted. Actually, I have it right here. Let me just read it. They derived their greatest joy in generating joy in the others. What did God the Father wake up in the morning? Not that there was mornings and waking up even, but you get my sense from this. What was his purpose in his... There wasn't days. It gets hard to describe it, doesn't it? But what, what, what did God the Father want to accomplish? What was his purpose? What was his greatest delight? His greatest delight was to bring joy to the Son and the Spirit. And the son, what was the son's purpose in that relationship? What, what was his greatest joy? His greatest joy was to produce joy in the spirit and the father. And the spirit, what was, what was he all about? What was he like? I can't, this is what I want to do. I want to do it so badly. Producing joy with the father and the son. And so in this small group, the Trinity, there were three individuals whose greatest delight was bringing delight and joy in the others. And God, the Fa- God existed in that Trinitarian relationship in eternity past, totally happy in that relationship. Now, whenever I talk about God being happy, there are, I think some of us, well, I don't know if I like that idea so much. And we view God as being sort of morose or being, uh, he's so reverent about everything that there's no happiness in God. No, God is joy, always glad. Laughter, delight in those relationships. The Father delighting in the Son. The Son delighting in the Father and the Spirit. And the Spirit delighting in the Father and the Son. Joy, gladness. But where did that come from? It was not self-oriented. It was. It came from their delight in bringing delight to the others. So for all of eternity, this kind of churning and burning and glad delight in all of that is what it meant to be God. Now, I don't think they called it love in eternity past. I don't know if they, who knows how within the Trinity they communicate. I don't know. It just was. 
Love, listen, love is a reality. It's not just a make-believe. It is not just something that we need to survive. It is, it is core to the person of God. So much so that in 1 John 4, 8, God says to us here today, I am love. Churning, burning, delight in bringing joy and gladness for the good of another. That is me at the core. He is love. Love comes from God. So let's go back to the story. That's God in eternity past. And we oftentimes talk about this, and as you know, it's one of my favorite things about, favorite theology things, is how God delights to make pictures of himself. And the Bible says that this whole world is a giant self-portrait of God. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Romans 1, that his divine attributes have been clearly seen in creation so that men are without excuse. This whole thing, including you and me, is one giant incarnated self-portrait of God. This world is. And God made it that way. And he built into the fabric of all of this what he is like. So the special I saw on TV yesterday, the Grand Canyon, it is big because God is big. And we look at, we look at uh, a, a meadow. Maybe this morning you drove by a cornfield and the, the, there was fog or there was some kind of, oh, why was it that way? Because God is beautiful. And we look into the stars and we see the sun spinning, or no, the earth spinning around the, the sun at the same rate all the time. Why is there so much consistent mathematical incredible symmetry in the universe? Because God is un unbelievably balanced and perfect and symmetrical. And so he built into the world all these symmetries that we live by and go by every day, even if we don't think about it. This whole world is about God. It is a giant picture of what God is like. So in the story, here's the, here's the great thing. And this is where love is such a wonderful part of what God does. In the story of why God did what he did, in his desire to incarnate what he is like into the creation, God made us with a capacity to relate to him and to each other in a similar fashion to the way that he has related to himself for all of eternity. In other words, God God derived joy in living for the good of another, he made us similarly to have the greatest joys and the greatest delights, not in a basic selfish orientation, living for myself, but when we self-give for the good of another, irrespective of their worthiness to do it, when we give of ourselves for them in this, in this way, we ourselves are blessed by it. Just like God the Father has been blessed for eternity past in the relationship with the Son and the Spirit, so too we, when we give of ourselves, are that way. And what do we call that giving of myself for the good and the joy of another? That is love. And it is a blessing. And it is the most powerful reality in this entire universe. 
First John 4. This is really my only text. So why don't you turn there if you have a Bible, please. First John 4. And as you turn there, essentially what I'm saying here is that when we love like God loves, when we love in a selfless way, that God is giving us the privilege of participating in the divine nature, in the joy of God. We, we, we breathe the air of heaven. We know what it's like to be God, in a sense. Not that we're God, not that you're God, and some of you need to know that. <laughs> uh, but it's like God for us. Now here's what First John 4 says. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Look at verse 12. No one has has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Now, let's just be honest. You're all going, hmm, hmm. And you're very much wanting to put a look on your face like, I totally get that. Hmm. But that's because I'm so godly and insightful into the text. Uh, That's a little confusing, isn't it? It sounds kind of like biblical um, uh, gobbledygook, mishmash. Uh, It just kind of is like, what does this mean? So here's what I want to do, and I think this will be helpful. Every place that this says love, let's put in there self-giving. Okay? Self-giving. And let me read this again with slight editorial freedom. Beloved, let us selflessly give for one another. For selfless giving is from God. And whoever selflessly gives for the joy of another has been born of God and must know God. Anyone who lives their life without this kind of selfless giving does not know God. Because God is and always has given for the good and joy of another. No one has ever seen God. But if we selflessly give for the good and joy of someone else, the life of God abides in us. And his own characteristic of selflessness is being perfected in us. God is at his core selfless, generous, and seeking the joy of others. And whoever lives in this selfless, generous, seeking the joy of others way is living in the life of God, and the life of God is living in him. I think that really helps make that clear. Think about it for a moment. Why is love the greatest reality in the world? Now, you may argue that point, but I would challenge you to think about your own life. And the moments in your life that you would say were the greatest moments uh, in, in, in your life. 
I would have to believe that there was some aspect of that moment that related to the experience of divine love. Where either you were selflessly giving for the good and joy of another, or where you were experiencing somebody selflessly giving for the good and the joy of you. And that kind of transcendent moment are the greatest moments in the human experience. These are the things that define us. It is love. Something else that I can say today is that I don't have to know very much about you to know something about you. I don't have to know you at all to really know you. I can know today that every single person in this room desperately wants to love and to be loved. Anybody hear that not uh, true of? That's us, all of us, isn't it? We long for that. God has made us for that. And I wonder today if this might not explain a lot of the unhappiness in the world around us and maybe even the unhappiness in your heart today. You long to be loved. You long to love. And yet love is largely absent from your life. And perhaps right now you're thinking to yourself, that's right. I need to be loved. This is why I am so unhappy. What the Bible would say is, no, actually, it's the reverse of that. It is when we love selflessly, when we give of ourselves, that we experience this thing that we want so much, so badly, meaning, significance. Here's how Jesus said it in Acts 20, 35. It is more blessed to give than to receive. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, how would Jesus know that? Obviously, he knows everything. He is God. But how would Jesus have experienced that? You want to know how? For all of eternity past, this is what he was experiencing in the Trinitarian relationship as God the Son. He knows where real blessing comes from. It is not in the receiving. It is in the giving of ourselves. And this is where it's so hard for us as Americans because our whole thing is all about us. In fact, think of all the energy and time that we spend thinking about ourselves and all the work that we go to accumulating things for ourselves that prop us up and make other people think that we're really something after all. And we worry about so many things our, our, from our, our, our image to our looks to our children and whether they're obeying in a way that makes us look like good parents and, and our cars and where we live and all these things all oriented around what me and we live in a very unhappy culture don't we i wonder why we're not made to live for me our joy comes the same as god in giving of ourselves for the good and the joy of another irrespective of their worthiness and without regard to what i get out of it it is more blessed to give than to receive like, think of all these uh, people that brought meals by for me in my, in my recent convalescence. Who was happier after that meal? Actually, that's not a good illustration because I was very happy after that. <laughs> think of some other example like that and you'll know what I mean. A life lived in self-giving is the most blessed life. 
because that is the essence of love. So what is real love? Let me give you a few, a few definitions of it. One writer says this regarding God. His self-giving affection for his image-bearing creatures and his unselfish concern for their well-being that leads him to act on their behalf and for their happiness and welfare. St. Augustine said this, I call love to God the motion of the soul toward the enjoyment of God for his own sake and the enjoyment of oneself and of one's neighbor for the sake of God. And here is my definition. Love is self-giving for the good and joy of another. Now, I know right now, some of you are probably thinking to yourself, boy, I had been kind of excited about this series, but now hearing him talk a little bit, I really am not quite so excited about this. All this talk about selflessness, that's not exactly what I was thinking a series on love would be all about. I'm sort of interested in finding out how I can find love, how I can experience love, how people can love me more. And yet this seems to be more about me having to love other people and serving and giving of myself. I'm not so interested in that. I don't think I'm going to come. I hope he has another surgery. (laughs) It's true. This this is probably not, not a lot of people are going to be buying the CD after this one because it's not news that we want to hear. It's because we're so Corinthian. We're so American. I will tell you that I, I have been anticipating the series and, and with some fear and trepidation because I know that this is going to be extremely challenging in my own life because I know myself better than you. And I think if you knew how often I think about myself, you would be fairly shocked. And yet I got to preach the thing. I'm not sure I'm real ha- I'm not sure I'm comfortable with the transformation that that might require or the hypocrisy for that matter. Some of you might be thinking things like this. I hope my husband comes and treats me better as a result of it. Or I hope my small group is listening because I see some failures in the way that they relate to me. And I hope some, I can learn some ways to be a more beautiful person so others can admire me. You see, my friend, what we are really looking for is a series about us. That's what we really want. In fact, can I tell you a little bit more about my surgery? You see how it goes. Now, wouldn't it be nice if there was a word that could capture the essence of what this means? We've already said, even in the English, that it's a challenge because we love our goldfish, we love our genes, we love our God. What? Using the same word for all of those? And in the first century, the Christians had a similar challenge because they had learned about love in the person of Christ in a way that the normal Greek words didn't seem to fit very well. Uh, the, the language of the day was Greek. And so there were Greek words that talked about love, but the love that they described was, was nuanced in ways that didn't seem appropriate to a dying savior on the cross. There was a kind of brotherly love. There was a kind of sexual love. But what about this love that Jesus displayed on the cross? What are we going to, what word are we going to use to describe that? 
Well, here's what the Christians did. They found a very obscure Greek word. So obscure, a Greek word about love. So obscure that in the Old Testament translation of the, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, known as the Septuagint. And if you think about all the times that love is talked about and described in the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms, I mean, over and over and over again, this word is only used 20 times in the entire Old Testament. It's not found hardly anywhere else in Greek literature. Here's what the Christians did. They took that word and they infused it with redemptive, salvific, Calvary meaning And this is the word that dominates the New Testament in its description of love. And I want to give you the word. Here it is. It is the word agape. Why don't you say that with me? Agape. Now, agape means love. We sometimes will say agape love, which is redundant. Love, love. But it means something unique. Paul uses it 75 times. It is used 116 times, and probably all the real important references to love in the Bible that you love and and that you know about use this word. Let me give you just a couple examples. First of all, the most famous verse in the whole Bible. For God so agape the world. Now we might look at that and say, boy, isn't isn't that a wonderful statement about how, how lovable we are? I mean, he had to love the world. I mean, look at us. Look at us. He was almost obligated to do it. We're so lovable. We, th- we think we can easily see this as some kind of a statement about our worth. This has nothing to do with our worth. This has everything to do with the glory of the, of the one who is loving. God, agape, self-giving for the good and joy of another, namely all of humanity, the world, and sent his son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Here's another one, Romans 5, 8. God shows his agape for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is a verse worthy of, of meditation because it shows that the love that God has shown towards us really had nothing to do with us. We were yet sinners we were still rebels. We were still in, in defiance of God. Yet he still loved us. Good place for an amen. amen. He loved us. Oh, how he loves us. Why? Because he is love. Amazing. Amazing. One writer says this, and I liked it so much, I I just got to include it. It is a love for the utterly unworthy, a love that proceeds from a God who is love. It is a love lavished on others without a thought whether they are worthy or not. It proceeds from the nature of the lover, not from any attractiveness in the beloved. The Christian who has experienced God's love for him while he was yet a sinner has been transformed by that experience. Now he sees people as those for whom Christ died, the objects of God's love, and therefore the objects of the love of God's people. In his measure, he comes to practice the love that seeks nothing for itself, but only the good of the loved one. It is this love that the apostle unfolds. Well said. And here's the essence of it, and I've already referred to it, but I just want to put this back up again. 1 John 4, 8. 
God is agape. This is a staggering truth. God is love. Not that love is God or that God can love, but he is at the core, at the essence of who he is in his nature. He is love. He's saying essentially to us today, you want to know the God of heaven? You want to know what I am really like? I am love. And today, I know throughout this room, there are people who are in desperate need of this truth. We just, if, if I could just kind of let a wave crash over the whole room. The love of God to be shed abroad in us. The real love. Not the American definition, not the Corinthian definition, but the definition that God's character provides. A selflessness, a giving for the good of unworthy people like us. We need this truth. And here's why. Beyond just finding salvation in it. Life argues against this, doesn't it? We live our lives, and what happens in this fallen world? Things happen that we deem undesirable. And even as Christians, we think, well, God's in control, he's sovereign, and I know he's love, but this certainly doesn't feel like love to me. This doesn't feel like good to me. This is not putting any joy in in me. Why is this happening? We see it on the national level. We see it on the international level. Today, morning, six Americans who were doing mission work in Afghanistan, medical mission work, I believe an agency led by a former member of our church who was not there, killed by the Taliban. What were they doing? Good, serving God. Think of their families now here at home. And really the rest of us going, why did these kind of things happen? doesn't seem fair, doesn't seem good, doesn't seem loving to me. And this week in your life, who knows what news you're going to get this week that's going to try to convince you that the God of heaven doesn't have your best interest at heart, that he doesn't love you. Friends, God is agape. He is love. In spite of our interpretation of the chaos in this world, there is a God who transcends all of it, and his nature is love. And what a comfort that is for his people to apply that love in spite of the argument that life creates to my life and my heart and to rest in that. And you might be here saying, well, you don't know what's going on in my life. There's no way that you can say that. If I could, if I could get the microphone and they took you down and gave me the microphone, I would argue against that. And I would tell all these people that there's nothing to it because this is the pain that I've had in my life. I don't know love. I know hatred. Well, I got a trump on you. You might think you got a trump on me. I got a trump on you. There is one thing that trumps any argument against the love of God. And it's the place that I said we're going to go back to again and again in this series. We go back to a bloody Savior hanging on an executioner's cross and doing so for the good and the joy of us. God himself gave his life in order to save us from our sins and to restore a relationship with him, which will be for our eternal good and joy. The cross stands starkly, doesn't it, in a world 
that wants to say that God is not good and he doesn't love. And it says that God is love. Oh, how he loves us. Oh, how he loves us. Oh, how he loves you. Because he is love. It is his nature. It is the vibrancy of God on display in the world, which we now have the opportunity as God's people to reflect and to express. And you go, what does that look like? Here's what it looks like. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. That's what it looks like. And unpackaging that and allowing it to become a part of the air around here is the challenge and the opportunity we have in the days ahead. May God bless it to our souls.